With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm a compliance evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 398 of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have back with me Laura Perkins. Laura is a partner at Hughes, Hubbard & Reed, and we have a fascinating discussion about the Hoskins case. But first, I'd like to give you a few words about Converge 18, the conference being held December 8 through 11 in Denver by Conversant. Converge 18, hosted by Conversant. As you know, this last year has brought ethics and compliance to the center of business reputations worldwide. With the acceleration of the speak up culture and organizational accountability that social media is enabling and amplifying, companies need to incorporate integrity into every level of their organization. Converge 18, which will be held from October 8th through 10th in Denver, is helping organizations to do just that with the ethical transformation of leadership. The goal of Converge 18 is to arm you with information, strategy, and tactics to transform your organization and your career by connecting business ethics to business performance through process augmentation and visual data. You can find out more at conversant.com. Listeners to this podcast will receive a 50% discount. Use the discount code TOMFOXVIP, all uppercase, T-O-M-F-O-X-V-I-P. Once again, I hope you can join me at Converge 18. I know you will have a great time. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode. Today, I have back with me fan favorite, Laura Perkins. Laura is a partner at Hughes, Hubbard & Reed. She's a former prosecutor in the fraud section. And we are going to talk about, we rarely get uh, current events, uh, certainly circuit court current events in the FCPA world, but we had one recently. So I'm lucky enough to be able to visit with her to talk about the Hoskins case. So Laura, thanks again for taking the time to visit with me today. Sure. Thank you very much for having me back on. I appreciate it. So uh, the decision was styled U.S. versus Hoskins from the Second Circuit, uh, and I was wondering if you might be able to give us uh, some of the background to the case. Sure. Um, the As you said, it is a pretty current event. The um, decision just came out at the end of August um, after uh, essentially being briefed and argued and, and presented to the court, I, I think it's about three years ago. Um, so the... Uh, the, the government and uh, a lot of uh, outside parties have been waiting on this decision for quite some time. Um, but just to give you a, sort of a, a high-level overview of what the case is dealing with and, and why people have been wanting and waiting for it to come out um, sort of more globally than just Mr. Hoskins, um, the case addresses whether a foreign national who doesn't fall over one fall under one of the enumerated um, categories in the FCPA for example, agent of an issuer or a domestic concern or a foreign national who takes actions in the United States, whether that individual can be held liable for conspiring to violate the FCPA or aiding and abetting violations of the FCPA. So that's the question that was presented to the Second Circuit. Um, and, And just to give you kind of a little background on the case itself, um, it, 
the government charged Mr. Hoskins in a multi-count indictment, uh, alleging, among other things, that Hoskins, who, as I said, is a foreign national, uh, was an em- uh, and who was an employee of a UK subsidiary of Alstom, um, that they ch- they alleged that uh, Hoskins directed and authorized corrupt payments by a US subsidiary of Alstom to Indonesian officials. So kind of a mouthful there, but um, but but that was the essence of of the allegations in that uh, case, and the government charged uh, Hoskins with, among other things, there were a variety of counts. Um, one of the counts being conspiracy to violate the FCPA. In the lower court, Mr. Hopkins moved to dismiss uh, the conspiracy count against him and argued, uh, among other arguments, um, that that he couldn't be charged with conspiracy to violate the FCPA because he was a foreign national who did not take actions in the United States. And as such, he didn't fall under one of the enumerated group uh, groups of people covered by the statute, and that the government was uh, the government couldn't circumvent the limitations that Congress had placed in the statute by charging him with conspiracy. Um, the lower court agreed with Hoskins and dismissed the conspiracy count. Uh, the government filed an interlocutory appeal and challenged the ruling. The Second Circuit, uh, in the opinion that just came out agreed with Hoskins and the lower court on, in, one, in one respect and overruled the lower court in another respect. Um, the one where, they, where the Second Circuit agreed with uh, Hoskins, the Second Circuit held that Hoskins could not be liable for conspiring to violate or violating the FCPA if he didn't fall within one of the enumerated categories in the statute. The Second Circuit Circuit disagreed with the lower court um, with regard to the government's ability to charge Hoskins uh, as an agent of Alstom with conspiring uh, with foreign nationals who uh, conducted actions while in the United States. So the government had charged um, Mr. Uh, Hoskins both as a foreign national conspiring and then also as an agent of a domestic concern. The Second Circuit allowed that second portion, um, the agent of a domestic concern aspect, to move forward, um, but said the government was prohibited uh, from from moving forward uh, with the first aspect of the charge. The Alstom case, uh, this this case is not in a vacuum. Uh, the Alstom case is well known. At one point, it was the uh, second highest uh, FCPA uh, uh, fine penalty in the top 10 list. Uh, the uh, investigation uh, and the uh, underlying investigation and the resolution uh, took literally years. There were several other individuals uh, who were charged, two of which I believe have pled guilty or one pled guilty, uh, one is deceased, and I think uh, maybe one other has uh, uh, not pled guilty. Uh, so this was an um, a very, very large case, very significant, uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, perhaps not admitted to, but certainly facts which, which would indicate uh, bribery and corruption. Um, with with all of that as background, the um, I guess what I'd like to turn is to really your expertise, Laura. Where would you see or how would you see this uh, impacting the Department of Justice and prosecutions going forward? So I think 
that, um, you know, we'll have to, in part, we have to wait and see what effect this will have. Um, on sort of first glance, um, it, it could have a significant impact. Um, but when you unpack it a bit and look at the government's other possible avenues of prosecution, um, it may not, in fact, have as large of an impact as it would otherwise appear. Um, I think that um, in, in many instances, um, the, the government will be able to find alternative ways of charging uh, foreign defendants uh, for what, in, what previously, pre-Hoskins, would have been charged as a conspiracy to violate the FCPA. Uh, for example, you know, I think the DOJ will look to use money laundering uh, and conspiracy to, um, to violate money laundering statutes to bring charges in lieu of the FCPA. Um, and I think that you see this often in connection with uh, the bribe receivers. So when the Department of Justice charges gov foreign government officials with accepting bribes as part of an FCPA sort of conspiracy, um, it's often done in the money laundering context. So I think that, you know, the ability to charge that or possibly wire fraud in some of these cases may dampen the the effect of Hoskins. Um, and Hoskins, as I said, also doesn't uh, preclude the government from using agency theory to reach foreign individuals and companies. Um, so that may be an avenue that they use more often going forward. Um, and then there's, there is, you know, to the extent that it affects the Department of Justice's and the U.S. government's ability to prosecute these um, sort of certain individuals or companies, it does nothing to limit the department's ability to share uh, any information they've gained in an investigation with foreign authorities and to work with those foreign authorities to, um, to prosecute uh, individuals or, uh, you know, foreign companies for these types of uh, violations. Laura, you, you, you brought up two great points. Uh, the first of which is the uh, amount of arrows in a prosecutor's quiver is quite large. And in the FCPA world, uh, we have such few cases, certainly that get to the court of appeals level. I think um, a lot of compliance practitioners and, and perhaps others forget that, the, as you correctly note, prosecutors have a wide variety of statutes that they can utilize in uh, a wide variety of uh, corruption, money laundering, or, or other types of claims. But the second point, that uh, also I think is very significant, which is the uh, work that you and your colleagues at the uh, former colleagues at the Department of Justice did over the past five to seven years uh, to create relationships with prosecutors outside of the United States to help not only in investigations, but also in referrals for enforcement actions. And certainly we saw the results of that in multiple enforcement actions starting in 2006 with corporations. Obviously, Odebrecht comes to mind, but Rolls-Royce, um, uh, Keppel Offshore, and several others, uh, Teolia. Uh, we hadn't seen it as much with individuals, but this case uh, really seems to me to really set up that type of cooperation, that type of referral, that type of sharing of information with uh, <clears throat> prosecutors outside the United States who may go after uh, individuals or at least uh, persons on an individual basis. 
Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think that to the extent that the department um, investigates a case um, and finds you know, culpable individuals or companies, and then realizes um, that they are somehow prohibited from uh, prosecuting that case by Hoskins or or some other reason, um, they you know the incentive is definitely there to to refer, um, and, and the connections are there, like you pointed out. Um, the connections with foreign authorities have increased tremendously um, over the last, you know, decade or so, um, to the point where the government has the uh, ability, really, now to to refer these cases to foreign authorities and to work with foreign authorities, often um, particular individuals at those authorities that they know um, have met at trainings, have worked with on other matters, uh, and so. You know, to the extent Hoskins limits the Department of Justice, there are um, increasing avenues for for them to refer these cases out. Uh, one of the things that I've certainly been thinking about, Laura, is the implications for corporations, U.S. corporations subject to the uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, who are doing business outside of the United States. And I say that because it does not uh, seem to me that the Hoskins decision uh, really uh, impacts or even limits. Uh, the uh, jurisdiction over a U.S. corporation who may engage in bribery and corruption outside of the United States. Would that be correct? Well, I think um, if, it's, if it is the U.S. corporation itself, that is correct. Um, if it is a foreign incorporated subsidiary of the U.S. corporation, it could affect the that subsidiary and therefore the parent's potential criminal liability, depending on the factual ties to um, sort of between the parent and the subsidiary and the subsidiary and the United States. And, um, you know, and like I was saying, even if the government weren't able to bring a um, an FCPA case against the foreign subsidiary or the parent for some reason um, related to Hoskins, there is the potential to look at kind of money laundering or, or other avenues against the, the foreign incorporated subsidiary. So uh, I guess where I would kind of shake out on that last point, Laura, is to um, for a corporation to assert those uh, jurisdictional defenses would indicate uh, perhaps a lack of cooperation or at least a desire to go to trial. And certainly in my experience has been that uh, very, 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 very few corporations uh, want to risk that and that they are willing to accept uh, perhaps um, – what uh, might not be as robust a jurisdictional argument uh, for the certainty of a resolution with the Department of Justice. Uh, now, I know you now <laughs> sit on the defense side of things, uh, but uh, where, where would you see that that point? Um, so I, I think that the, um, the department um, can be aggressive in its uh, jurisdictional sort of views um, and, and attempts. Um, but also realistic. Uh, and so if a, if a company were to go in and say um, there is no jurisdiction here um, and, and it were truly the case uh, that the department would, if it, if it shared those views, um, likely accept that. But if the department got the sense that jurisdiction was being used, as you pointed out, in a way to not be cooperative, um, then, you know, there, there would be more potential that the department would try to find jurisdiction in a different way um, or really refer the case 
out to foreign authorities and then work with them to, to build the case. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, it is infrequent that a company will, as you pointed out, sort of challenge this and take it to trial. Um, but there are variations and different degrees that companies um, will and, and in some instances can and should um, go to the department and say, look, there's just no jurisdiction here. Um, if the department truly does not have jurisdiction, the company should point that out to the government. Absolutely. Uh, and, and as we talked through that last point, it, it struck me that the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy that was announced uh, near the end of last year really does incentivize in a, in a, a much more formal way companies to, to engage in a broad range of cooperation, certainly remediation, obviously self-disclosure and profit disgorgement uh, with the presumption of a declination. So it would seem to me that uh, the department has put some significant incentives out there for corporations uh, to, to not raise those defenses. Um, well, I, I'm not sure that the, that the incentives are out there to not raise the defenses. Um, I think that the incentives are out there to uh, incentivize companies to come in and to self-report the conduct. Uh, and cause I think that the corporate enforcement policy tries um, to make clear that um, that there, you know, if there is no jurisdiction, that that would not even be considered a, a declination under the policy, that it would be just a declination because the government, in fact, can't bring that case. Um, but, I, you know, I don't I don't think that companies should uh, should be afraid to present valid defenses. To the Department of Justice, um, it is it's their right. Um, just by saying I'm a cooperative company doesn't mean that they shouldn't present valid defenses. Um, I think they absolutely should do that. Um, it's again their right, and it won't. It in my experience wasn't used against a company. It's often um, sort of a matter of negotiation whether the government agrees with the defense or not. But it is absolutely something that the company. Um, should present if, if, if it is a justifiable defense. Um, Laura, one of the things you said a, a little bit earlier was that we, we may need to take some time to see how the full impact of this decision. When you have a decision like this, are there internal discussions uh, in the DOJ, in the fraud section, or in a, in a section that it would really apply to about how to move forward and steps taken uh, based upon a court decision like this? Uh, absolutely. Um, when when something like this happens, there will be, I mean, discussions that are going to be case specific as to Hoskins, um, because Hoskins will move forward. Um, I understand they may be calendaring some dates soon um, with regard to the remaining uh, counts in the indictment, as well as the sort of modified conspiracy count. So the department will have to move forward um, or will be moving forward with the Hoskins case. And so we'll be discussing how they move forward uh, from a factual um, proof perspective on the agency aspect of the conspiracy count, um, as well as how Hoskins affects any other investigations that the government currently has. I mean, I think there will be an assessment of, um, okay, Hoskins was, you know, decided against us. Um, so are there investigations that we need to reconsider uh, in light of that? Um I don't know, and it'll be interesting to see whether the government will take the position that Hopkins' um, 
restricted to the Second Circuit and any matters or cases they have that are jurisdiction, you know, that they're venued within the Second Circuit, or if they will employ that sort of more globally across the country with regard to their enforcement efforts. I think that'll be interesting. And Hoskins will also sort of has the potential of fleshing out some of the open agency questions um, as well. So it'll be interesting to see as it as it moves forward. Well, Laura, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I've been visiting today with uh, Laura Perkins, partner at Hughes, Hubbard & Reed. We have been talking about the Hoskins case and really focused on the implications for both the Department of Justice and for corporations doing business under the FCPA. Laura, I wanted to uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you very much. I appreciated being here, uh, and I uh, hope uh, you all in- enjoy the session. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, where Laura Perkins and I discuss the Hoskins case. If you'd like more information, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, I hope you will join me at Converge 18. Once again, uh, you can get a 50% discount off the admission fee by using the code TOMFOXVIP, T-O-M-F-O-X-V-I-P. hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.